amazing is that, right? <laughs> no, just me? Okay. <laughs> Surely some parents will clap. Come on now. Uh, Jim mentioned it, but you know, he's, he is, uh, for those of you who maybe not know, but Jim Davis is in his 33rd year as the youth pastor here, which is just a, an incredible blessing. And, uh, you know, this is his, the farewell leg of his journey as a youth pastor. He's not going anywhere. You know, we've got, we're shifting his role over into a, a I'm really excited. It's, it's a role designed for him. And I, and I mean that sincerely. But I'm excited to celebrate him this summer because it is the, he is the definition of legacy. And so in August, we're going to be throwing a huge rager and inviting everyone who he's impacted. And so, you know, you look forward to things like uh, iced milk and Twizzlers and Coca-Cola. Uh, but it's going to be, I mean, for real, we, we, we canceled some things to, to really put our effort on. on if, if we were to say, hey, he's retiring, but he's not, not retiring, we want to treat him as though he is. Because it's kind of like a, a celebration of life that we give people when they're already gone. I want him to hear it on this side of attorney because he has made an impact. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm excited for that. So more details to come, but, but I'm excited. And it's also uh, Promotion Sunday, which means all of our kids, your kids, uh, have gotten kind of a level up. And we do this intentionally to give them the summer to acquiesce, if you will, to their new reality. So there's some kids that are in our elementary program for the first time, new kindergartners. There's some uh, fourth graders in our fourth and fifth grade ministry for the first time. And then my favorite, there's some new sixth graders in youth ministry for the first time. And we're kicking off a brand new youth ministry or a junior high youth ministry on Sunday. So I'm excited for them. So make sure you ask your son or your daughter how they enjoyed today uh, and, and help them lean in. You know, I made my daughter, uh, she's going to be in fifth grade. So she has to start coming to church. So she's at the 930 service. And, uh, you know, if I just have this moment of being a, a parent, she's got a notebook and she's got her Bible. And so she had like a little breakdown after service. She's like, I, I didn't take good enough notes, dad. And I was like, babe, you're not here for homework. You're here to understand how much you're loved and be a part of the fabric of this body. And so we're gonna have that conversation with her tonight. So it's crazy how, man, we put things on our kids and we don't even realize we're putting on them. So I just encourage you parents to encourage them today because it's a lot of change right now. All right, we are in this series on Jonah called Rising Strong. And so last week we kicked it off. Uh, we put together a study guide. If you would love to jump in on that, it's been in the church email, but you could text the number and the word rise on the screen if you'd like to get it. It's kind of a, if you will, some notes that I use or a little study guide that helped me craft this series. I want to kind of give you those resources. You don't have to, no obligation. We're not going to spam you or anything. Just want to make resources available. So if you'd like that, go ahead. And what you're going to do is you'll put the number in and you're going to text the word in the message. That's how that works. All right. Uh, but we are, it's a, Jonah is a book um, of four chapters. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Jonah, he's an Old Testament prophet. If you go to Isaiah, you've gone too far. Uh, right. But, but last week we kind of jumped into chapter one. And in chapter one, we, we kind of talked about this idea of what does it mean to run from God? And we call it the reckoning. It's this place where we have to decide, are we really desiring to follow God? We say yes, but then when he asks us to do something, do we run from him or do we run to him? And, and kind of the takeaway there was, was this. I put it on the screen for you. The Lord calls each of us to participate in his forcefully advancing kingdom. He doesn't call some of us. He calls each of us, right? That means that the Lord is going to ask you to do something. And that's really where the rubber's going to hit the road. Are you going to do it? Or are you going to run like Jonah? And so we're going to recap it here in a second. But today we're talking about the rumble or what it means to run to God. Next week for Father's Day, I'm really excited. We're giving away a smoker. We got some great things planned. It's going to be a great time. Bring your dad. Uh, bring, you know, your, your kids. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. But we're really talking about the revival, or not revival, the revolution. What happens when we run with God? The power of partnership with God. And then week four, if there was the most important week of the story, it absolutely is chapter four. And it's the revival but here's the crazy part. It's the moment where Jonah started to run against God. And that's crazy. And it's probably the one that's going to hit hard for us. Jonah is not a story about a big fish. It's a story about a big God. Okay. So my daughter being promotion Sunday, she said, Hey dad, since I have to go to service, will you make it more fun? I said, yes, have no fear. We have flannel graphs. So there's this guy, his name's Jonah. 
Listen, y'all should see me practicing all week for this. It's been awesome. You could have this too on Amazon. It's great. Right? So we have this guy named Jonah. It's on the screen. Okay, good, good, good. This guy named Jonah, and Jonah was considered a prophet. Now, here's what's crazy is I don't know what the credentials or the quote-unquote requirements are to be a prophet, but what I do know is that he heard from God. He had a relationship with God. He talked with God. That's why when God asked him to do something, it's what caused him to run. So you got this guy named Jonah. He's a good dude. And the Lord comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go to this great city called Nineveh. And, and I think we fixate sometimes on Nineveh, the great city, but I want you to understand that God doesn't really care about buildings, technology, and infrastructure. He doesn't care about great cities. What he cares about is the great people in the great cities, right? That's why Jesus, it said in the New Testament that he would leave the 99 to pursue the one. We serve a God who is desperately in pursuit of his people, even when they are going the other direction. And he calls Jonah, he says, I want you to go and tell these people to repent because I'm going to destroy their city if they don't. But I love that he calls it a great city filled with great people. Great people. Because we serve a God who sees the best of us even when we're giving him the worst of us. That's crazy. So great city, great people. And, and Jonah is faced with this choice. Do I obey? He has the reckoning. Do I respond? And so he has this gate decision. Do I go to Nineveh or do I go to Tarshish? If, if Nineveh was California, because people in California need Jesus, that's a joke. People in Ohio need Jesus too. Okay, right? If California was Nineveh, Jonah books a ticket for London. He do, his dude goes 2,500 miles the opposite direction. He literally thinks that he can outrun God only to find out that you cannot outrun God because God chases you down. And so what happens is while he's on this boat, being the coward that he is, he is trying to get away. Uh, the Lord who, who pursues us, pursues us in creative ways. And so he sends a storm. And what was one safe passage became rough waters and the waves. And evidently it was such a storm that the sailors called out to whatever God would listen because there's no atheist in a foxhole. And so again, the oddity is Jonah is sleeping. And so the captain goes down and he goes down to the boat and he says, wake up, Jonah. How could you be sleeping like this? Pray to whatever God you serve. And Jonah then confesses that this is his fault. And the sailors get angry. They're like, what do you mean this is your fault? Well, I serve the God that creates the wind and the waves and the storms. And they looked at him and said, you idiot, why are you running from him? And that's amazing when people who don't even know God get angry at us for not following him. That's called a testimony. That's how we should live our lives. And so anyway, they get really angry. And he says, listen, the only way we're going to solve this is if you throw me overboard. And, and, the, and which is crazy because it just shows you how much of a coward he was because he could have jumped but he wanted to put the burden on them. And, it, and I love what the sailors do. How did they respond? It says that they tried to row faster towards shore. They didn't want to kill someone. They don't want to be murderers. Finally, they called out to God, which is crazy. They called out to our God. And they said, hey, listen, we don't know why this person isn't following you. But don't hold us accountable for his mistakes. We're sorry. We will serve you. And they get saved. And they throw Joan overboard. And that should be the end of the story. But the Lord, because grace gets the last word, sends what some people call a big fish. Or was it a whale? I don't know. Does it really matter? He sends redemption, not punishment. Because while Jonah should be dead, he was actually swallowed up by God's grace in that of a fish or a whale. And so today we're going to pick up the story with what happens next in the story, which is chapter two, which is a very unique moment because for the first time in the entire book, Jonah does a very unique thing. He cries out to God. He never cries out to God until he gets in a moment he can't get out of. And if I could give you one piece of wisdom before we go any further, and if you hear nothing else today, can I just encourage you? Don't wait until you have no one else to cry out to. Because here's the deal. God doesn't just show up, show out, and, and change us when we're at the worst. He actually will respond to us even when we're at our best. It's us who choose to wait to cry out to him. So don't wait. Don't wait. Call out to the God of the universe now before you're in a situation where you need him. 
Because he'll give you wisdom that will avoid you being in situations where you have no options. But nonetheless, Jonah's in the belly of this beast and he's calling out to God. And here's what's crazy. This prayer that he prays is one of his most powerful prayers in scripture. Why am I telling you that? Because sometimes we are in a bind. We are in a moment where we feel like we're being tossed to and fro. We don't know what to do. And we don't even have the words. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's in the book of Romans. Paul writes the story and he says, hey, that's the cool part of the Holy Spirit. That even when we don't have words to say, the Holy Spirit understands our moans, our rumblings, and our grumblings. And it takes that words, it interprets that to the Father for us. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what Jonah prays is so beautiful that if you're in a moment where you don't know what to pray, can I just encourage you to go to Jonah 2 and pray what he prayed? Because it's good. In fact, it's so good that on the Yom Kippur, which is one of the Jewish festivals, the priests on the final day of Yom Kippur, the most sacred holiday in the Jewish calendar, they read Jonah's prayer. Now, that's crazy. In October, we're going to do a series called Party People, and we're going to unpack the Jewish feasts because we serve a God who says we should celebrate often. In fact, our entire calendar is based around celebration because life is not meant to just be lived, but it's meant to be enjoyed and celebrated. I'm really excited for that series. That's in October. But on Yom Kippur, Jonah's prayer is read in the afternoon, holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And after the congregants were there from tired and exhausted from fasting and praying and confessing all day long, the way that they would start is they would read this prayer. And what this prayer meant to them was this, I put on the screen, our admission of wrongdoing on this day represent a personal descent from which we seemingly can never recover. But then as we reach the very bottom of our internal oceans, we hear Jonah's prayer. And we remember that there's a God who offers salvation. So this is a powerful prayer. So with that being said, let's jump in to chapter two, verse one. We're going to read it and unpack it as we go. Are we ready? Okay, very good. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow us along on the screen. Here goes Jonah chapter two, verse one. It says this, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord. And in my great trouble, he answered me. I cried out to the Lord and in my great trouble, he answered me. Let's unpack that really quick. There's three things in that verse. And here's number one. Why are we surprised that God answers? Now, I know that you're sitting here going, that's a stupid question. But I just invite you to really like, okay, once you get over the stupidity of that question, because I hear you. I hear you. I want you to lean into that. Why are we surprised when he answers? Because here's what's crazy. Many of us are like Jonah and we wait till we're in a bind to call out to him. And I ask that question because I want you to know, like we serve a God who does answer. We serve a God who does care. We serve a God who desires to engage his creation. That's in fact what separates the God that we worship from any other small g God that people try to claim is, is God. We have the only God that created someone and then desired to engage in relationship with his creation. So why are we surprised that God answered? Number two, here's what I will tell you. Prayer doesn't change God because he doesn't need changed. Now, why is that important? Because if I were to take account of your prayer journals or your prayer lists, I promise they would read much more like a Santa Claus wish list of all the things you want. And I would just invite you to take on this perspective. Either stop praying wishless prayers or when you pray, start realizing that the only person that's going to change, which is number three, is you. And you better be okay and prepared to change. Because like I said, prayer is something God uses to change us. And many of us, we go into this, our, our prayer moments. We go into these moments where we cry out to God, thinking that our situation or the situation or the other person's going to change. And I just want to remind you, no, God's going to change you. So make sure you know that before you pray. Because one of the most dangerous prayers you could pray is God help. Because listen, he'll help. He'll help you become a better you. 
He'll help you reflect more of him and less of your flesh. He'll change you. So Jonah gets this moment and we're going to see why he got to this moment because the story goes on where he cries out to God and God begins to change him. What is prayer? Prayer is the moment we close the gap and remember God's presence. It's the moment we admit our reality, affirm God's power, and we align to his will. That's a lot right there. That's a loaded statement. If you're you're gonna write anything or take a picture, this is the one. Okay, here's what I'm saying. Prayer is where God closes the gap. There is a belief in most of us that our reality and our suffering are connected. And I wanna invite you that that those are, are things that our flesh connects, but our reality and our suffering are not connected. And sometimes we're in our reality because of our choices and it's causing suffering. But if we understand our reality and we invite God into it, it will cease our suffering, but it's still going to be our reality. And here's how we do that. We do this part. We admit that we're helpless. We admit we need a savior. We admit we need help. Then we affirm who is the God of the universe and what does he do? We acknowledge his goodness and his graciousness. And many of us have no problem with one and two. We love to admit and affirm. In fact, our entire church, we really like to admit. We walk around like it's a badge of honor. I'm a sinner in need of grace. And that's a good thing. We're really good at telling people we're not good enough. I got to tell you, I was at a church in Montana a crazy church. And we did a series that kind of tackled the identity of the church. And we put this billboard up right in the main part of town, this massive 20 by 40 billboard. And it said, this church that I worked at is full of hypocrites. It was awesome. Cause you know, all these people came out of the woodwork defending us. People are calling the sign company, people who don't even go to our church. People who are sure don't even know Jesus. They're calling the church and like, someone put up a billboard about you. And it was hilarious. We're like, yeah, we put it up. (laughs) And then after the first week of the series, we changed the billboard. It said, this church is full of hypocrites and there's always room for one more. (laughs) Because can I be honest with you? We are a bunch of hypocrites. We're a bunch of people trying to be like someone we will never measure up to be like. And we're going to fail at it. We admit that. We affirm God's goodness. But here's the problem. Many of us do the first two and we never get to the third part. And the third part is where heaven begins to scrape the pavement. The third part is when we align to God's will. We align to his will. But Jonah chapter two helps us unpack that. In verse one, we see him admit it. In verses two through seven, we see him affirm it. And then verses eight through 10, we see him begin to align his life towards the direction of God. Now, before we go any further, I need to give you a warning. I feel like this this chapter needs an asterisk. And here's what I mean. Have you ever gone through a situation in your life where it was bad and you prayed and you called out to God and then, then on the other side of it, like you saw him work? Somebody testify with me, raise your hand. You, you've seen God work in your life. Okay, good. I'm not the only one, Right? And then when you go to tell someone that story, when you go to share that, we call that a testimony. We go and we talk about the goodness of God in the land of the living, which is what we're called to do. In fact, Revelations, we just got done studying. It says that the enemy is defeated by the testimony of the believers and the blood of the lamb. Our testimony is super important. Our stories we tell are super important. So when many of us go to tell our stories, we naturally do this we naturally change little details or embellish parts about how bad of a situation or how bad our hearts were in the midst of the situation. Could I get an amen? Amen. And the reason we do that is because we know how the story ends. We know the God that showed up. Why I'm telling you this is because the prayer that we're just about to read has come from a, a, a jeopardized narrative. What I mean by that is I don't think we're getting the unfiltered prayer that Jonah really prayed. We're getting the prayer that Jonah recounted and wrote down for us. And in that recounted prayer, I'm sure we're missing maybe some human words, some human frustrations, some some maybe the real quality of his heart. 
He does a good job. It's a great prayer. But I tell you this, and I'm going to point it out a few times, where he assumes a narrative that would be very incorrect. And we're going to point that out. It doesn't mean that the story is jeopardized. It just, I just want you to make sure you watch it, read it, and understand it with that reality. So let's keep going. Verse 2. Jonah keeps praying. He says, I called out to you from the land of the dead. And Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths and I sank down to the heart of the sea. Okay, that, there it is. Right there. Right, the first part, real strong. I called out and you heard me. And then what does he says? You threw me into the ocean. Is that true? Did, did God come and throw Jonah into the water? Was Jonah, would he, Jonah even ever have to be in this situation if he chose obedience? What, why am I telling you this? Is because I want you to understand that Jonah very much shows his humanity. And it's a humanity that we all carry. And you know what our humanity and sin nature invites? It invites us to change our perspectives to be that of a victim mentality. In fact, it's so pervasive, it's one of the threats of the church today is how, much, how many people have a victim mentality. They think that their situation they're in is God put them in that situation. And what I want to do is slap them upside the face and say, no, your stupid choices put you in this situation. Now, I can't do that. I, again, my kids, right? My kids, I take away dessert because they did something wrong. I'm like, oh, you took away dessert. I'm like, no, 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 you chose your choices, and you knew the cost, and you chose it. Why am I telling you this? Because this victim mentality, if we don't be hyper aware of it, if we're not hyper vigilant at chasing the victim mentality in our own lives, we will become victims and we will cheat ourselves on the fullness of what God has for us on this side of eternity because we think everyone else is to blame. And the truth is it's not. I said this, this statement months ago. And I put on the screen, it says, you are not responsible for the pain that your obedience to God causes. And I very much stand on that statement. That's a very important statement to me. I think it's a very powerful statement. Now, I got to tell you, when I shared this, some people came out of the woodwork and, and kind of put me on blast. That's a very cool team uh, term or way of saying they criticized me. And, and, you know, it's interesting. Their criticisms had some validity. One of their criticisms was, uh, well, how does that answer abuse? And I was like, ooh, that's good. That's really good. And I want you to understand that I, I very much believe this statement, but I feel like I do need to put an asterisk. Listen, church, you are not responsible for the pain that your obedience to God causes. Scripture is filled with moments where it's going to say, uh, the cost of following Jesus is going to bring pain. It's going to invite choice, people having to choose if they're going to engage with you. Scripture says in Acts that, that it's going to cause father against mother or father against son and daughter against mother. It's going to divide families. It's going to cause chaos. Jesus himself said that. He says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And the choice that you have to make is, are you going to follow God? And if you are going to follow God, you have to understand it's going to cost you something. But the pain that that choice comes with, you're not responsible. God says, I'll take care of that. Now, here's where I will tell you. Here's my abuse statement. If you use this to hurt people, to beat people, or to inflict damage on people, you have failed to understand Jesus' most important command when he says you are to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you're to love your neighbor yourself. Because here's the deal. I don't care how holy you think you are. If you can't do those first two, nothing else you do matters. And so what happens is we tend to weaponize scripture and we use it to mistreat a lot of people. And I would tell you to put the sword of truth down and recognize that the sword of truth in this day is not probably a weapon of defense, but it's probably a scalpel in the hands of a very skilled surgeon that can divide bone and marrow and can bring healing to a lot of people. But we treat it like a blunt instrument, thinking that that's going to do the job. So here's what I will tell you. While yes, you are not responsible for the pain that your obedience causes, I want to very much tell you the opposite is true. You are responsible for the pain that your disobedience to God causes. You are responsible, mothers and fathers. 
You are responsible, grandmas and grandpas. You are responsible, kids. You are responsible, everyone else in between. You are responsible for the pain that your disobedience to God causes. Why? Because here's what I'm saying. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. But this, the beautiful part is when we get grace and truth right, it becomes medicine and it brings healing to a lot of people. And that's the goal. And so Jonah begins to understand this as we go on. Verse three, it says this, the mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath the wild and stormy waves. Then I said, oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. There's that, that flare up of victim mentality. Lord, you drove me from your presence. No, Jonah, you ran from God's presence. Why am I telling you that? Because some of the things you're praying for God to change, uh, church, could I just be the one that tells you the truth? You're in this situation because you weren't obedient to begin with. And thank God we have a savior. Thank God we have a savior. But just because you have to deal with the consequences of your disobedience doesn't make him less of a good God. He is not less of a good God. He goes on. Oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. What Jonah knew is that all he had to do was send up that signal and it would go directly to the holy temple where God would hear. He keeps praying. I sank beneath the waves in the water. It closed over me like seaweed. It wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O oh Lord God, snatched me from the jaws of death. I, I don't know if you've ever drowned. Judging by the fact that you're sitting here today, I'm going to say no, because you're still here. Uh, years ago, I was living in Montana and we, we did this thing. We went on this rafting trip, which sounds really glamorous. What we did is we inflated a bunch of tires and floated down the Yellowstone River for days. It was awesome. We brought camping supplies. We camped on the little islands. We burned driftwood. It was great. The Yellowstone, on the other hand, is one of the most dangerous rivers in the United States. It's killed the most people. Why is because uh, there's a gravity... There's the rotation of the earth, so it's got a strong current, it's got a real strong undercurrent, and it's such a crazy river because there's parts that are 40, 50, 60 feet deep, and then there's parts that are like three inches deep, and it's constantly changing. And so here we are in these tires, and we have a big raft that has a lot of our gear, but we're just floating down the river, and there's this little tributary that had like awesome white water. And I don't know if you know this, but the best part of whitewater rafting is when you get thrown out of your raft. So I'm like, hey, let's park the raft and let's ride this tributary. So we get on our inflated tires and we just go down this little tributary. It was awesome until I got kicked over and thrown under. And what happened is I got stuck in a V. In the river, there's a V. And so what happens is the draw of the water creates this cyclone effect because the head rock is pointed up this way and the water just does this and it puts you in like the, the spin cycle of a washing machine. And so I got kicked out and I got sucked under. And, and it was this crazy moment where I was like, I, I'm a, I pride myself as a being a pretty good swimmer. Like I swam all my life. I was a lifeguard, which if you're looking for a job, it's an awesome job, young people. Sun and fun. And I, I remember going, wow. And it was this really scary moment. Like your life does kind of flash before you. And I remember thinking to myself, is this it? Is this how I'm going to die? This is pretty cool. I didn't have kids, okay? My wife was just up there. She could have saved me. She didn't. <coughs> Sorry. Right, but I'm just spinning. And I remember like literally thinking and like, I can't get out of this. And then, and then I don't know how, but I just broke free and I just literally just shot me out. Thank you, Jesus. Why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because I see this in Jonah. In fact, they tell you that, 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 that right, people who are drowning, they, they, they do very different things than Hollywood depicts. People don't scream, help, I'm drowning. In fact, dr most people who are drowning are silent. Why? Because they're having a panic attack and they're sucking in water and they can't scream. It's one of the most crazy silent killers when it comes to water. 
In fact, as a lifeguard, they tell you when you're rescuing someone, you have to position yourself and you have to maintain a position where it's your safety first because a, dr- a drowning person kicks and flails and, and thrashes and gnashes and does all that stuff. And, and there's a lot of people who are, are going to save someone and end up drowning because they don't know how to properly save someone. And I'm saying that all that, put all that together, I can understand how here's Jonah thrown out into the sea and the, he's not just bobbing in the water and then a big whale comes or a fish comes. No, it, basically he's drowning and his life is flashing before him and he's kicking and he's thrashing and he's getting all twisted up in the seaweed and then he floats and he gets to this place where it says the mountains, the bottom of the sea. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O oh Lord, you snatch me from the jaws of death. And I love that because grace always gets the last word. Church, why do I say that? Is because here's the deal. Grace always gets the last word in your life too. You wouldn't be here if it didn't. He keeps going. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to him in his holy temple. This is the beginning of Jonah's alignment. It's also this moment that I really have to hit again. Why did Jonah wait until this moment to cry out to God? Why did Jonah wait till this moment to remember the Lord? Why do we wait till we're in these moments to cry out to God because he cares about you now. He cares about you when you're good. He cares that when you're getting better, he cares about you when you're starting down. He cares about you when you're at your worst because he cares about you. So Jonah begins to align and we pick this up in verse eight. He says this, those who worship false gods, they turn their backs on all of God's mercies. I want to pause here. We're going to camp here for a second. This is a powerful statement. In fact, this is the most important verse in the entire story. Not the entire story, the entire chapter. What does it say? I'm going to read again. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies. Whether we realize it, whether we like it, whether we believe it or not, whether we are at the stage of being convinced or inconvinced or unconvinced about it. Can I tell you, Jonah understood something in the midst of his confinement that he probably never understood before. And that's this. What you worship will always dictate the terms of your obedience. Pastor, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Jonah discovered that it's not really male or female, uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, this or that, because that's what we like. We like to categorize everyone. And the great thing that scripture tells us is, you know, the only categorization that matters to God is those who are worshipers and those who are idolaters. Because everything is drawn back to a worship problem. And here's the worship problem I'm talking about. It's not the person you think you worship. It's the reality of what you worship. See, Jonah, in this moment, he understood this is a matter of worship. This is a matter of what I give the most amount of my attention to. Jonah was very versed in the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible. He would have known as a prophet of God, he would have known the writings of Genesis and Exodus. And in Exodus, there's this, this old school moment. It's where we get this thing called the Ten Commandments. And yes, it's more than a movie. It's this moment where, where Moses goes up and he communes with God and God gives these very simple commands, these very simple truths. They're like base level. And what's crazy is many of us can't remember. We remember like three or four of them. So if I may, let's just recap. I put them on the screen for you. Here's the 10 commandments. They're very simple. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. He keeps going. You shall not take the name of the Lord in God in vain. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. You should honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You should not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Can I tell you, if you do nothing else, but you just obey the 10 commandments, your life will be better. But can I blow your mind? Can I tell you that the order of these 10 commandments are very important? 
Because here's the crazy part. If you just follow the first two commandments, you'll never have to deal with the rest. Oh, because it's a worship problem. When you have no other God but the God of Israel and you worship him, and then number two, you refuse to make idols of everything else in your life, it's amazing you'll never struggle with the next eight. What does it mean to keep or to take the Lord's name in vain? Well, it means to curse God. When you understand there is only one God, the chances of you cursing the one God, but if you think you have options, the chances of you cursing the God go up incredibly high. When you understand that he is God and you are not, the chances of you cursing him diminish quickly. Let's keep going. When, when you don't keep the Sabbath day holy, it tells me that you worship your job more than God. Because Sabbath is the day that we choose to remind ourselves that we are not what we do or the work of our hands. It's the day that we rest in who he is. And many of you don't even know how to Sabbath because you worship your jobs. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? It means to recognize what respect is. And when you don't worship God, you have no understanding of authority and you have no understanding of what it means to be taken care of. And so when that causes you to dishonor because you think what you know is better and therefore you dishonor your parents, you worship what you think you know. He keeps going. You shall not murder. Wow. Murder. Well, how does that have to do with worship? Can I tell you that if the most of what science tells us, what statistics tell us is that most murder today happens out of anger so passionate that it cannot be controlled. Man, when we worship our feelings rather than submit our feelings to the God we worship, it causes us to do ludicrous things like murder people. And many of us right now, we're in a cycle that says we should worship our preferences and feelings above God. Let's keep going. You shall not commit adultery. Yeah. When you worship sex and how sex makes you feel and relationships, it's amazing how adultery happens. Oh, my spouse, it just doesn't give me the attention I deserve. Here's just a free piece of advice. If you could remove anything from your vocabulary, it'd be the words I deserve. Because if you want to play that game, let's just call a spade a spade. You know what you deserve? Hell. Hell. But when we worship how our relationships make us feel, when we worship how sex makes us feel, we will always cheat God's intended plan for us. You shall not steal. When we worship stuff that we think we have to take in our own hands, the accumulating of stuff, we choose not to believe that worshiping God, that he's the great provider. And so we steal. When we choose to bear false witness against yourself, we choose to worship our reputations as the foothold that we step on to get to the next level rather than the testimony of God in us. When we covet, we worship what we wish we were and wish we had more than wishing what, worshiping what God has given us, the creator in the world, and him being enough. What you worship will always dictate the terms of your obedience. And so Jonah says, those who worship false gods turn their back on all of God's mercy. And he continues, but I, I will offer sacrifices. That's a term for worship. I will sing songs of praise. That's a term for worship. I'm going to fulfill my vows. That's a term for worship. Because you know what the definition of worship is? Obediently responding to God's word. It's not singing, it's not sacrificing, it's not Hail Marys and saying little chants. It's obediently responding to God's word. So what, is, what does Jonah say? But I will worship the God, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. And guess what? I just said it. When we understand that salvation comes from God alone, it changes everything. 
Because many of us, if we're honest, we think it's about how good we are or if we did the right things or what we deserve. And again, let's be honest, you know what you deserve? Hell. Your salvation is because there was a God who allowed his son to step out of heaven, who walked amongst us. He submitted to the limitations of humanity. We uh, loved him and then we hated him and then we screamed, crucify him. And at any moment while he was on his journey to the cross, as he was being beaten and bludgeoned for our sins, at any moment he could have said, I don't want to do this. I don't need this. I don't want to endure this. But that's not what he did. He said yes to it. He said yes to your sin and your shame on the cross. And he said yes, knowing fully well what the human capability was. He said yes, knowing the great atrocities at the hands of humanity, knowing the great atrocities that human beings and the harm we could inflict on each other. And he said yes, because he loved us. And he said yes to, I'm going to make a way where there's no way. I'm going to give salvation which is not deserved, but is the gift of my grace. Why does that matter? Because we're going to find that some people have forgotten that they are the scandal of grace. Jonah being one of them in chapter four. Can I tell you right now, that as you are, however good you think you are right now, however obedient you think you are right now, however awesome of a follower of Christ you are right now, guess what? You're still a scandal. Meaning you don't deserve to be here. You deserve to be in hell. Because salvation comes from God alone. And then the final verse. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Here's the question. Here's the homework. Here's the take home. Here's the practical moment. Here's what this prayer has to do with us. It's really can be summed up in one question. I put it on the screen. Will we admit our reality to God? Will we affirm his goodness? And will we do the hardest part and align our hearts to his plan and his purpose? And here's the funny part. It's not really funny. You know, my, my daughter, and I'm not a good parent. I'm just gonna be honest with you. In fact, you know what's making me a better parent is our new curriculum and the parenting resources that give us. It has this, I have this app on my phone that has, I literally, it says Zoe Grace, that's my oldest daughter. And it tells me how many more weeks I have with her until she moves on to whatever her next thing is, which is out from my control. I have 470 or 442 weeks left with her. I scroll over and there's my son, Carson. It says I have 674 weeks with him. Let me, let me reduce that to more practical numbers. Uh, we're in summer right now. Most of us get 18 summers with our kids. If you don't think this season matters in your kid's life, you're an idiot. Sorry, you are. This is one of 18 moments with your child and you better make it matter. So right now we're teaching my kid. The hard thing, we're saying, hey, listen, sweetheart, we love you, but you need to start reading God's word for yourself. Mom and dad's faith isn't going to get you there. It's got to be your faith. Why am I telling you that? Because my fifth grade daughter is right now struggling with what, if we're honest, most of us in this room is right now. We have Bibles. Some of us even carry our Bibles. But you know what most of us or very few of us actually do is read our Bibles. We look at this and we go, oh. <laughs> Not sure what that was. We look at this and we go, I don't understand it. It's confusing. It's boring. I'm just telling you, we, we, we literally, Amazon has flannel graphs for this boring story. This is, the not, this is the most NC-17, TVMA, R-rated, scandalous, craziest book in print. It tops any of the crazy story you could imagine. It, it, it's rooted in here. And yet we think this is boring. Can I just be honest with you, church? We want to uh, admit our reality. We want to affirm what God does. But here's the deal. We will never be able to align with what he wants if we don't know who he is. And the only way you get to know who God is is when you read, study, internalize, and know his word.
So I don't know what your problem is, but can I just be honest with you? It's probably a worship problem. Because here's the deal. Many of you think you worship God because you're sitting in church today, but you're wrong. What you really worship is sports, your children's schedules, your jobs, or whatever else is more important than spending time with God. That's what you worship. And if I could strip all of that away, here's the crazy part. We would be like Job, who literally had it all stripped away. He had his job, he had his status, he had his livelihood, he had his reputation, he had his kids, he had his fortune, he had it all stripped away. And what did he still do? He still worshiped God. That's the crazy part is, many of you, you couldn't handle any aspect of your life being taken away. If I told you you had to give up Starbucks for a week, there'd be people in this room who would cry. If I told you you had to give up going out to eat, many of you people would complain. If I told you you had to sacrifice a vacation, if I told you that, hey, your kids shouldn't play sports, why? Because as a family, we need to prioritize church because most kids' worldview, if not all kids, is established at age 13. And right now what we're teaching our kids by running them all over God's green earth is that their life and their schedule is more important than the going to church. And then we're gonna get angry when they don't take their kids to church and we're gonna pray. God, where are you? Right now is your moment to impart in your kids what really matters. Because I will tell you, however talented you think you are, it isn't enough for you to get into heaven. And if you think being skilled or successful or a reputation or making money or playing this is more important than getting to heaven, your priorities are out of whack. But it takes you, church, aligning to God's plan aligning to his will, which you have to know. I can't tell you. Sure, on Sunday, I can expose you. But guess what? What is 52 times a year? And listen, statistically, you know how many times you go to church a year? It's less than 20. Some of you are like counting. You're like, I'm faithful. Yes, you are. Good for you. But here's the crazy part. There's 365 days. And we serve a God who wants 365 days. Not 30, not 40, not 52. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to hear him. He wants you to sacrifice whatever you think is important for what he thinks is important. He wants you to love what he loves. He wants you to go where he sends you. He wants you to be a part of his forcefully advancing kingdom and change the world. But you're not gonna be a part of that if you think this is enough to keep you graces. No, what you'll do is you'll be like the majority of Christians in Western civilization. You have wishless prayers. You have unfulfilled lives. You have a victim mentality. And you have missed out on being a part of the greatest advancing kingdom on this earth. And someday when you are in heaven, you will see everything you could have been. You will see that everything that God did, and you will go, man, I wish I could have been a part of that but I understand God's grace and I'm just happy to be here. And you know what? Good, that's all right. But the world really wants, the world really needs the person who's willing to go all in and align with God's will. The person who really is going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You know what the world wants? The world wants to see heaven scrape the pavement. That's us being obedient to him. Let's stand as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're calling us to. Father, whatever this conviction you are putting on, whatever this, this word that you are setting into hearts, God, may we not run from it. May we cry out to you right now. Would you help us to align? Would you help us to have a hunger for your word so we can begin to submit our lives, our schedules to you? God, may we align with your will so that we can see your goodness in the land of living, so we can make a difference, so we can make heaven bigger and hell smaller. God, may we not be like Jonah who just runs and then testifies to it being not their fault. God, we're not a, we're 
we're not accountable for, for our obedience. We don't have to bear the pain that our obedience to cause. We don't have to worry about the fallout of our reckless faith, but God, we do have to own. We do have to deal with. We do have to live with the consequences of our disobedience. God, I pray that you would convict us right now. And that, Father, we would change. That we would say yes to what you're stirring. That we would lean into it. And yeah, it's gonna break some hearts. Yeah, it's gonna hurt some feelings. Yeah, we're gonna have to go back on some things that we said, sure. But Father, we will see the sweetest part of our calling on this side of eternity and not have to wait for it. And Father, guess what? May you help our people to see that when we're obedient, what revival breaks out in your name, what we could change in your name, what the world could look like in your name. May we see great cities filled with great people repent and turn to you. May we see a third, a fourth, a fifth great awakening. May we see revival because the best days are still ahead. We are still on track to be the bride that you come back for. So Father, help us to do our part. Pray these things in your name. Amen, amen. Listen, if you have not experienced salvation, if you don't know this God, if you are sitting here going, I want in, I don't wanna wait till I'm at rock bottom, or maybe you are at rock bottom. Can I just invite you to go to that prayer section? Can I invite you to go talk to people and get in on the goodness of God in the land of living? Let's sing as we process. And our prayer for you today and for this week is that the Holy Spirit would reveal to each and every one of you what are those things that you need to crucify in your life? What are those things that maybe you are putting before God and maybe you need to just lay those aside and allow God to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords of your life? Well, again, if you are new and you have not yet connected with us, we would love to connect with you guys back there at our guest connection table. We also want to pray with you if you have those things in your life that you are still struggling with or you need the Lord to reveal. We would love to be there for you and to pray with you back there in the prayer wall behind you. So thank you guys so much for being here this morning. You guys are all dismissed. Thank you.